0: Please take your Bibles with me and open them to Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. Now we all know, and maybe we don't think about it very much, but we all know by experience the power of an example. That an example, whether good or bad, can have a powerful and profound impact upon our lives. We think about the examples that we've had, again, whether good or bad, and how they have shaped us, how they've shaped our perspective, our view of the world, how even the examples we've had as younger people affect our decisions as older people and our choices as older people. Examples are really one of the most common shapers of human life. As we watch others, listen to others, we're often drawn to those examples. And we know by experience that we all leave examples. That in fact, even when we don't think we're being watched, we are being watched. We're being studied constantly. And we leave an example, whether good or bad, everywhere that we go. The Bible actually tells us we're supposed to leave an example. In 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 7, Paul commends the Thessalonian church for their example, that they've become an example to all the churches in Macedonia because of their faith. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, Paul tells Timothy, Don't let anyone despise you because of your youth, but set the believers an example. The Bible calls us to be good, godly exemplars of the faith. So others watch us. And as they watch, they're to see Christ in us. We're to leave a Christ like example. Our examples, our conduct, either give credibility to the gospel message we proclaim or they discredit the gospel message we proclaim. And so the Bible has much to say about the way that we live, about the way that we conduct ourselves, about the way that we conduct ourselves in public, about the kind of legacy and example we leave to others as we encounter them. You guys have heard the phrase before from Thomas Aquinas, and he has it wrong when he shares this phrase, he said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words, that's Wrong because you always need to use words when you preach the gospel, but his underlying assumption there is spot on. There's power in our example, and we lend credibility to the message we preach or we discredit the message we preach by that example. We either exemplify being disciples of Christ or we don't, and those examples have profound impacts on people around us. But on the other side of this coin is not just the fact that we leave an example, it's also the fact that we should follow godly examples. In fact, even seek out godly examples. Look to godly examples. Again, the Bible's not silent on this matter. It tells us over and over and over again the importance of A godly example in your life. In fact, it implies that godly examples are great gifts of grace from God, often helping us see that the scriptures can be lived out in flesh and bone people. In the New Testament, this is what the Bible has to say about watching the examples of others. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, Look to the rebellious Israelites in the wilderness, they serve as an example. Of what not to do. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, Peter says Sodom and Gomorrah are examples of what happens when you rebel against God. Jude, verse 7, says the exact same thing. James, chapter 5, verse 10, says the prophets are examples of suffering and patience. How to persevere. How to persist. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3 9 that his life was an example to the believers of hard work. In this very letter, Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, he says his life is to be an example for the believers to imitate. Even our Lord is described as an example. In John chapter 13, verse 15, he calls himself an example. He's just washed the disciples' feet and then he says I've given you an example. In 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21, Peter calls our Lord an example, an example of how to suffer in a godly way. You see the Bible knows the power and the worth of a godly example. And it calls us to leave those godly examples. It calls us to look for those godly examples. It calls us to imitate those godly examples. As we come to today's text in Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, I think that is at least part of the reason that this passage is included in Philippians. I think it's especially true as it's applied to you and I today. Now, the main point of this text, verses 25 through 30, the end of the chapter, the main point of this text is technically summarized in verse 25 and in verse 29. Paul says in verse 25, I'm sending to you Epaphroditus. And in verse 29 he says, so receive Him. That's the main thrust of the passage. Send and receive. I'm sending, you receive. He even emphasizes those things. In verse 25, he says, I thought it necessary, vital, a priority to send to you Epaphroditus. Now, perhaps Epaphroditus, I think, is likely carrying this letter back to the church. That's why in verse 25, it's used in the past tense. I thought it necessary. He's not described as Timothy's described in verses 19 through 24. Timothy, I'm going going to send to you later. Epaphroditus, I've already sent. It's likely he's carrying this letter. But I think as we'll get into it, he's also serving another purpose. But he says, I'm sending him to you and I'm sending him to you in great importance. So, verse 29, receive him. Receive him with joy and honor him. It's the only command of the text. And it's emphasized when he says receive him in the Lord with all joy. That means great rejoicing, exuberant celebration. And then he says, honor such men. This man, I'm sending him to you for a lot of reasons. I want you to receive him with celebration, excitement, eagerness, great rejoicing, and I want you to honor him and men just like him. Now, technically, that's the main point. That's, in one sense, the reason this passage is here. So Paul can just simply describe, hey, I'm sending a guy to you, and I want you to take care of him. I want you to receive him back into your your family, into your midst. The problem is, or maybe the interesting part of the passage is, that's not all that Paul has to say. He actually adds much more commentary to the text commentary that honestly doesn't necessarily bolster the point of the passage in one sense it helps explain the point of his passage I'm sending so receive but in another sense it's something separate and yet as we study such a text with all the commentary in between about this man, this glowing recommendation, this, this glowing reference on his resume, we have to conclude that the point of this passage isn't merely just a send and receive instruction. There's something else going on here. What is going on here? Why is Paul simply wanting to inform this church of a man that he's sending and a man he wants them to receive, but he's doing so with such Glowing language about the man. More specifically, as I was studying this week, I wanted to know, why is this passage in the scriptures? Why this glowing commendation of this man? What, what does it have to do with you and I today? He's long dead. Why should we pay any attention to this text other than the fact that it's in the Bible? And why is it in the Bible? And how does this passage spur us on to faith in Christ? In other words, if I were just reading my Bible, I might just skim through this text. Not much meat here. Here's a guy. I'm sending him to you. I have a lot of good things to say about him. And so you should receive him. Well, I think the reason that this passage is in the Bible is the same for the Philippian church at the time as it is for you and I today. Paul is sending a man who exemplifies Christ. And we are to see an example of someone wholly devoted to Jesus. Jesus holy living for the mission of our Lord. This man, Epaphroditus, he's only mentioned in this letter, and yet the things that Paul has to say about him force us to conclude that he is a man captivated by the love of Christ. He is a man transformed by the grace of Jesus. And he is a man that has exemplified all that Paul has taught thus far in the second chapter of this letter. The priority and emphasis on unity in the church. Verse 3, not being selfish, but in humility counting others more significant than yourself. Verse 4, looking out to the interest of others. Verse 5, having the mind of Christ, which is the mind of humility and the mind of sacrifice. Verse 14, doing all things without grumbling or disputing for the sake of one another. This is all Exemplified in this man that Paul's sending back, Epaphroditus. So much more than just a send receive situation, Paul's saying, Look at this man, watch him, learn from him, study his life. Because he exemplifies what it means to give yourself to the mission of Christ. He's a living example of the power of God's grace to transform the heart and to transform the life. And you know as well as I know, we need such examples. How often are we crippled by shame and guilt and fear because of sin? because of disobedience, because of neglect, because simply we don't measure up to the standards we read in the Scriptures? How often are we tempted to think that our flesh is just merely too strong in this battle between our new nature in Christ and our old flesh? Sometimes we're just fed up and we think, how can I ever win the battle? How can I ever win the fight? How can I ever overcome the flesh? How can I ever grow? How can I ever be sanctified? How can I ever live up to such... Standards of godliness and standards of holiness and and standards of Christlikeness. In fact, it says in Hebrews, without this certain kind of holiness, no one will see the Lord. I know I'm not holy. How do I overcome these despairing moments of failure? I look to ordinary men like Epaphroditus in the Bible. And I see that godly living isn't impossible. Christ does change our hearts. Christ does change our flesh. He overcomes it. He conquers it. We are being renewed day by day. He's not going to give up on the work that He started in us. He is going to bring it to completion. That scriptural, biblical, godly, Christ-honoring living is actually possible. And how would we know that without flesh and blood and bone examples of it? I think this passage can be incredibly helpful for our day-to-day practical spiritual walks. We can look and read about an ordinary man captivated and transformed by Christ, find hope that such things can be true for us as well. Now, this text is not about necessarily the man. It's about the man's service to Christ. Look at his service to Christ. We don't look at this text and think how great of a man he is. We look at this text and say, that's what it means to serve Christ. The emphasis is on Christ. Even more so, it's not just how we serve Christ. It's look at what Christ can do to sinners. He takes them from enemies and he makes them this, he takes them from the opposite of himself and he makes them servants for his king, kingdom's mission. So let's look in verse 25 of Philippians chapter 2 and read of the example of Epaphroditus. And then I want to point out some of the things, some of the ways we see um, the example of Christ in his life. Paul writes in verse 25, he says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, And so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The first thing we take note of in verse of Epaphroditus is in verse 25, it's that he lives for Christ. Paul mentions five traits of this man in verse 25. None of them are Um, personal hallmarks of Epaphroditus. They're not internal traits. It's not as if Paul's praising his athletic ability or his intellect ability or his financial savvy mind. He's instead highlighting things that are external to Epaphroditus. More specifically, his relationship to those external things. Now, of course, these things reveal truths about his heart. A heart that has been changed by Christ. It couldn't be true any other way, as we'll look at. But the point I'm saying and getting at is don't look at these five things Paul mentions and thinks he's praising the the ability of this man. He's looking at these five things as he relates, as Epaphroditus relates to external matters. These are how we describe those relationships. First, he says that Epaphroditus is his brother. That's what we call a familial term, it's a Christian familial term. Term. And the Bible never uses such terms lightly. We may use them lightly. We may use them casually. The Bible never does. Anytime someone is referred to as a brother or a sister in the Bible, it's of great importance. It's a description that indicates great honor, it's a description that indicates great expectation. It's an indicator of great privilege. Paul is saying that this man belongs to Jesus Christ. He's a brother. She's a sister. Automatically, their personhood is elevated, isn't it? They're not just... Any person. They're not just some individual. They're not just some stranger. They belong to Jesus. They're one for whom Christ died. They are covered in the blood of our precious Lord. They're a brother. We know that that means He's born again. We know that this means He's given a place in the very family of God. We know that this means Epaphroditus is a man who has been designated an inheritance in Christ. In other words, Paul's writing to this church and he's saying, wherever God is, wherever God's people are, Epaphroditus belongs there. He's a brother. That designation for Epaphroditus is the foundation... For everything else in this passage. In fact, it's the very foundation upon which all of our Christian living must be built from. That's to say that if you are not a child of God, these other things in this text that we find exemplified in our brother can't be true for you. These are Christian traits. These are not things that you can simply muster up by your own effort. These are things that come from a heart that's been born again. These are things that come from a heart that's been given, surrendered to Christ, that's under the the lordship and kingship of Jesus. These aren't things that you and I can do in our own strength. If you're not a child of God, a brother or a sister in the family, the Bible says you won't please God. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 verse 6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. If you don't have saving faith and continued faith in God, you're not going to live a life that honors and pleases God. You're not going to live in a blended, flourishing life in God. This first description of Epaphroditus is the very center point of everything else that describes Him. It's the very center point that describes you and I. Everything that we are, everything we hope to be, everything that we do, and everything we possess, church, it only comes because of our personal union with Jesus Christ. Not because of your worth, not because of your ability, not because your instinct, not because your church membership, or any other thing that might fill the blank. The only way you will live a life pleasing and honoring to God is if you are swallowed up in Jesus Christ. If you can't be described in any other way than first being described as a Christian. Now that's Epaphroditus. Paul starts with the best kind of description He can give to anybody. He is my brother. We are bound in Christ. We belong to the Father. We're in the same family. We share the new same spiritual DNA, spiritual genetics, spiritual bloodline. Man, there just is no greater connection. And if you have a a poor home life, if you've come from a poor background, a a poor family, a poor upbringing, you know exactly how important that statement is. Because when your biological earthly family failed you, God's family didn't. At least I hope. That's why we preach and labor over and over to drill into our hearts that the relationships you have in the church Are legitimately your most important relationships. Without a doubt, your most important relationships. Transcending the relationships you have even with your parents and your children, unless they're believers also. So, Epaphroditus is first a brother. Second, he's a fellow worker. Now, that's not just a description to describe his work ethic. It's not just generally that he's a hard worker. It's specifically that he's a fellow worker in the Gospel. We know that from the rest of the description of Epaphroditus. We know that from the very heart and thinking and mind of of Paul. Paul's not merely going to praise somebody for just being a hard worker in tent making or or tax work. He's going to Praise them for being a worker in the Gospel. To be a worker implies effort, discipline, dedication, diligence. You think about your Christian witness, you think about your life in the context of those terms. As pertains the work of God through the church, Can you describe yourself as one who puts forth effort? Strenuous, honest, constant effort to the mission, glory, and agenda of Christ. What about discipline? Are you disciplined in your work for the Lord? Showing up on time. Clocking out not a minute early. Which, by the way, we don't ever clock out. Are you dedicated? My life is planned around my work to Christ. My vacations are planned around my work to Christ. My finances are planned around my work to Christ. The car I buy, the groceries I buy, the stores I visit, the place I get my hair cut, built around my work for Christ. Are you diligent? You know, diligence in work implies growing. Growing a study, a getting better. Are you diligent in your work for Christ? You know, being a worker in the gospel ministry, it's supposed to be common practice among Christians. But it's not. Which is why Paul senses that he needs to commend this in this man. If it was commonplace, then there's no reason to tell tell this church, Epaphroditus is a fellow worker, just like you and you and you and you. It's the fact that he stands out as a fellow worker, that Paul wants to commend him in being a fellow worker. But that shouldn't be the case. We should be able to look at every Christian, and as easily as we describe them as brother or sister, describe them as fellow worker. But if we're honest, too often in the church, we find that effort is lacking. Discipline is lacking. And dedication and diligence is lacking. Now, to be a worker, it means to put forth effort, discipline, dedication, diligence, all those things towards the accomplishment of a task or a job. What's our task or job as the church? It is chiefly the glory of Christ, glory of God, in Christ, how is that accomplished? Chiefly in the worship of the church and the evangelization of the lost. So, as pertains to this kingdom of God, this kingdom work, this agenda of Christ, we're to be workers in the gospel ministry, taking forth the good news of Jesus to a world that we we know is so. Deprived of it. They push it out of every sector. God's people are workers. They toil and they put forth strenuous effort with great might to glorify their Master. And thirdly, Paul calls Epaphroditus a fellow soldier. Flip over with me if you would please to 2 Timothy chapter 2 because Paul uses the same word here and he describes what his thinking is of a soldier in 2 Timothy chapter 2 he calls Timothy to be a good soldier and it's worth reading with your own eyes uh, because i think it's i just think it's a terrific metaphor so verse 3 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 3 and 4. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Now, many of you have served in the military before. I don't know that you would describe your service as aiming to please the one who enlisted you. Maybe it's more so just to endure the one who enlisted you. But a good soldier, his aim is to please the one who enlists him. Now, there's a lot of things we can talk about. You can preach your own sermon out of those two verses. What what does it mean to suffer as a soldier? We could look at the phrase, soldiers don't get entangled in civilian pursuits. They're not distracted by worldliness. But I just want to highlight the point that his aim is to please his enlister. That's Paul's understanding of a soldier. And then he says, "Paphroditus is a fellow soldier. He strives to please his master, strives to please his king. I also thought about this analogy, this metaphor. And I thought, a soldier is not necessarily a a general. He's a fighter. Specifically for Paul's time and Paul's reader, he's a foot soldier. He's not driving tanks or flying drones, he's out in the field of battle. And he's waging the weapons of warfare, wielding them for victory. And he's, since he's not the general, he doesn't call the shots. He doesn't make the plans. He simply follows orders. And he's to do so without question or without hesitation. He does so not for his own glory or his own agenda, but that of his superior officer, namely for his king. Laying down his life on the battlefield that his king's purposes may be realized. You know, church, we are very much in a war. The Bible calls it a spiritual war. You remember the old uh, children's hymn, I may never march in the infantry or ride in the cavalry or shoot the artillery, I may never shoot for the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. I wouldn't build a theology off that song. But it's a good reminder we are always in a war. And this war takes place on a large scale and a small scale. But we're not soldiers without a master. We're not soldiers without a general. We're certainly not soldiers without weapons. And as these assaults from the world come raining down, and even as those quiet, private, internal battles rage in our own hearts, we know how to fight this war. Our master is a master general, and he's got a war plan that he's already declared victory through. We're not left on the field alone to fight without direction. But if I could say anything further about it, I would say one thing I'm afraid the church is forgetting is that though we're in a war, war, this war doesn't fight against people. Ephesians 6 says we fight against darkness. If you think you're serving the agenda of Christ by warring against people, you've already lost the battle. Our warfare is a spiritual warfare against darkness. In fact, if we sit and we think about the imagery of warfare and we think about serving Christ as a soldier and we think of images of blood and and brutality and gore, it just reveals our hearts should be sanctified. That's not the way we fight as God's soldiers. We fight with truth. Contrary to the world, we fight with love. We fight with gentleness and tenderness and patience and kindness and goodness. Paul says Epaphroditus is that kind of a soldier. He's in that warfare. And he's so committed to the agenda of his king, the agenda of his master, he's so committed to Jesus Christ, he's willing to sacrifice his life. In fact, he says that later in the the text. He Nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service. He's a soldier, so he's willing to incur the battles, the wounds of battle. He's willing to put forth the effort to fight in the name of Christ so that light would prevail. He puts on the armor, he trains with his sword. He wields it with great diligence. And he does so for the glory of his master, even when easier roads may be taken. He does so because his life is not his own. He is a citizen, a subject of the king. Well, fourthly, we're not going to get out of verse 25. Fourthly, Paul says you're a, he's a messenger. He's your messenger. The language changes here. It's a reminder now of their personal relationship with Epaphroditus. He's commissioned by you. Sent out by you. He's one of you. He's your messenger. In chapter 4, verse 18, we're told, this is the second time Epaphroditus is mentioned in the New Testament. We're told he's the bringer of the gifts. Verse 18 of chapter 4, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. A fragrant offering. a Sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Epaphroditus knows Paul and has come into contact with Paul. At least here in the terms of this letter, he likely knew him before. But because the church trusted him and sent him with the gifts to support Paul's ministry. In fact, the very next description of Epaphroditus, minister to my need, tells us that. But while carrying the gifts, He wasn't just bearing material things. He was also a messenger. He spoke on behalf of the church. He was sent to encourage and strengthen Paul with his words. But specifically, He carried the only message that the church truly has. The Gospel. The only message that can encourage truly encourage any Christian. You know as well as I do, don't you, that the gospel isn't just for the beginning of the Christian life. It is for everyday Christian living. So whether I'm singing praise songs in church or bound shackled in a prison, it's the gospel that lifts me up. The reminder that God loves sinners and has sent Christ and has saved me and that Christ died for my sins, removed my guilt, paid my penalty, resurrected to new life to justify me before the Father, and one day He's coming back for me. That's the only message the church has. That's the only message the church needs. And that's the encouraging message that we all need all the time. And Epaphroditus is a messenger with that message. He carries forth the church's message. Yes, the church may speak other things from time to time and need to speak into other things from time to time, but she does so under the overarching umbrella of the Gospel. Epaphroditus is a messenger of the saving news of Jesus Christ. Calling, a task, a privilege of every member of the church. You don't have to stand behind a pulpit, be ordained, or even be paid to be a messenger of the gospel. You have that right, privilege, honor, and prerogative as God's children. Epaphroditus is a man who apparently could be trusted to share the message. Could be trusted to share it faithfully. To not distort it. To not go about preaching his own message, his own fame, his own reputation, but that of Christ. As the church surveyed their landscape, presumably, wondering who they could send to encourage Paul and be faithful to the message of the church and faithful to the Gospel... It was Epaphroditus who rose up. Well, fifthly, finally, Paul describes him as a minister to my need. Again, Epaphroditus was sent in chapter 4, verse 18 to care for Paul, to deliver this message and this gift to him while he's in prison. But I found it to be very telling here that Paul uses the word minister to describe Epaphroditus as he cares for his needs. It's the same word that's used of the angels when Jesus is tempted in Matthew chapter 4 verse 11. After his temptation, angels came and were ministering to him. It means to show deep care and concern like a Shepherd caring for tender lambs. It's to provide unique spiritual care. Unique spiritual uplifting. Unique spiritual guidance. And furthermore, I found it striking that a soldier could be described as a minister. Again, fighting for Christ doesn't always mean brutality. We fight the war differently. The soldiers in the Lord's army are ministers. Showing deep, genuine, honest, sincere soul care. But also, to be a minister doesn't mean you're weak or soft. To show gentleness, tenderness, compassion, and kindness... doesn't regard you as a weakling like the world may describe you. Humility isn't weakness. It's the hallmark of a true soldier and the only army that will ever finally win. Paphroditus is the soldier minister who tenderly and gently cares for those who are in trouble. Who exemplifies, I think, even the heart of Christ. I think of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 with great gentleness and tenderness. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Aside from the divine attributes present in that statement, that's a minister's heart. Epaphroditus has that heart. He knows how to minister. He cares for other people. He's not in it just for himself. Now, all these things combined, these five things, why does Paul feel compelled to share them? He just seems to keep going on and on and on. And how do they, why are they pertinent to anything you're trying to say? It sounds like you're just puffing this guy up. I sure would love to have that read about me in front of a church. I would, I'd love to have the Apostle Paul describe me that way. All these things come together to tell us that he's a man living for Christ. He's not a man living for himself. And that's what it means to be brought into the family of God. To no longer live for self, but to live for Christ. Christ. I think he is the epitome of these things Paul's been laboring to say in chapter 2. As I said at the beginning, he's, he's the epitome of looking out for the interest of others, of counting others more significant than yourself, even of the sacrificial humility of Christ. In verses 5-11, through 11, the example of Christ, one of sacrifice, one of humility. Epaphroditus, he is those things. But as I said earlier, I think mostly... He's the example that with Christ's help and under the submission of the Holy Spirit, godly living is both possible and immensely rewarding. Lest we think it's an impossible task, lest we think or are tempted to think that we'll never arrive there, we can look to this brother, as I said, a flesh and bone testimony that the grace of God actually does possess the power to transform us to be like Jesus. To serve Christ. To live for Christ. To belong to Christ. To work for Christ. To fight for Christ. To share the message of Christ. And to minister like Christ. The world doesn't need clever sound bites anymore. They don't need, you know... Incredibly intellectual people. They don't need whatever else they think they need or we think we need to offer them. What they need is Christ-like people standing as an example of the light, standing as an example of the power of the gospel to conform us to godliness. And so look to this brother and don't don't just say, what a great example. Look to this brother and say, I too can have the immense joy of reflecting Jesus Christ in this world. It's not unattainable to be described as a fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, and minister. With the help of the Holy Spirit, it's within reach. It's right there. I can reflect the very love of Christ poured into my heart to a dark world. Sometimes we're... in despair because we don't measure up. Sometimes we think the callings of Scripture are just too lofty. that It just won't be attainable this side of heaven. Sometimes we think we shouldn't look at such examples because maybe then we're leaning too much towards legalism and not enough towards grace. But the truth is, such examples in the Bible, according to the Bible, are good things. We're to look at them. And we're not to look at the individual and think, what a great person, let me be like them. We're to look at the individual and say, wow, look what Jesus can do. He can take a sinner and make him a saint. And if he can do that for Epaphroditus, he can do that for me. My life submitted to the Lord can can yield immense reward, immense blessing, and immense joy, even in the face of persecution, as I reflect Christ to the world. That's our calling church. If you bear the title, bear the designation, brother or sister, that's our calling. Not merely to be good people, to be reflections of Jesus Christ. Not merely to enjoy good morals, but to enjoy the honor of reflecting Jesus Christ. That's the only way the light shines into the darkness. We don't generate our own light. We reflect the light of Christ.